Welcome back to Sloydcast. This is your host, Mark Angelini, and I'm joined with my co-host, Mike Hanna, a.k.a. 60K Sloyd. And he brought a nice 60K sharp, or no, three, was it 3K sharp? 3K sharp. <laughs> knife that he made recently, so. I think that Reed Shorts episode got to him. It sure did. <laughs> and we're joined today by Fred Livesay, and I hope I pronounced that right. I, I, I just went phonetically. Yes, that's right. Awesome. Like I live in a house. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Fred, can you tell us kind of what, what you're... Um, avenue in the green woodworking world is and and uh tell us a little bit about, about yourself where you live what you do for a living and um and then you can give us kind of a brief intro in, into how you got into all of this stuff sure sure so um i still do green woodworking um i mostly do spoons but i also do things like shrink pots mm. um and i do a lot of dry woodworking as well i guess you'd call it that or typical traditional woodworking right and uh, I live in St. Paul in Minnesota, and, uh, and right now I live in uh, what would be considered uh, Upper Town, which is the oldest part of St. Paul. So there are a lot of old 1850s houses and things like that, and nice. hmm. up through the 1900s. And uh, my, main, my main occupation has been carpentry. I'm trying to weed myself out of that because it's just hmm. been really hard on me. Yeah. Hmm. But... Um, so I can't do a lot of heavy house construction stuff anymore. So mm. I, I, and house restoration. So I, I tend to, uh, I tend to tr do the lighter stuff like trim work now and some of the custom things like window work and that sort mm. of thing. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I make my living doing, you know, just lots of different things. So, um, I was, uh. I went to grad school um, in Cooperstown, New York, and was trained as a museum curator. Hmm. But while I was there, I worked as a blacksmith. Nice. Um, at the Farmers Museum in the museum program, and hmm. we did traditional 1850s or early 19th century blacksmithing. But it huh. really hadn't changed that much, right? Um, in the 1850s, you know, from the 1800s, so it wasn't that different. Um, and my my background. Um, I, uh, I got started doing, I should probably tell you, I, uh, the main thing in my fan, in my craft work journey, I guess, or Sloyd journey has been that at age seven, I met a fellow who became my lifelong teacher mm. and, um, and he's now 90, he'll be 91 in September. Wow. Yeah. And he's, um, he just took me under his wing when we met. And uh, what was wonderful was that I was, it was Christmas and it was, I think it was just after Christmas. And one of our neighbors um, who'd was, who'd just moved in was renting a house across the street. And he had, um, his name was Teddy Thorson. And he had a friend with him named Andrew. And Andrew um, and Teddy came over to play and it was in the evening. And it gets dark pretty early in the winter here. And so um, there was a knock on the door. We were playing with my new toys. I had a, a new Tonka, Tonka truck snorkel that you could hook up to the garden hose. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a knock on the door. And I opened the dining room door and onto the porch. And here stood this huge, tall man. And he had leather boots with turned up toes from Finland. 
in uh, bright red wool pants, a long blue coat with um, brocade along all the edges, and uh, beaver beaver skin mittens, um, and a big belt with a huge Sami knife on it. Nice. And a lynx hat and a big mustache. <laughs> and he bowed in, down and he said, I'm here to pick up Andrew. <laughs> and out behind him, and it was snowing that day, were a pair of Clydesdales with um, some lanterns on on a sleigh. Wow. And, you know, at age seven, that makes a big impression. <laughs> yeah. Oh, certainly. And uh, so Andrew got dressed and took off with his father, uh, who was I turned out turned out was Charlie Mayo, and he um, he uh, just became a, a lifelong friend, and they kind of adopted me as another son. Nice. So I ended up to this day. I feel like I have got two sets of parents, but I spent a huge amount of time with with Charlie and Charlie, um, even though he was a physician was always interested in handwork, mm. particularly in birch bark. Mm. Wow. So, um, so I spent a lot of time in the woods with him, um, and his son doing all kinds of birch bark work, learning to collect it. And then him having him teach me, um, all kinds of things about plants and animals and things like that. Mm. So what was edible, what wasn't, what were medicinal plants, that sort of thing. Yeah. So, and he, he got me, he got me, um, my first spoon I carved at age seven. Dang. So, and I still have it. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. What kind of and wood it, is it made out of? It's birch and it was out of a dry, you know, fairly dry piece of birch. Yeah. And it's a big spoon. It's just a straight flat spoon, you know, like you like a lot of people are making when they first start out anyway. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, and that was kind of interesting cause I, he had Charlie just finished sharpening the hook knife and we were sitting on his, uh, I think we were sitting in the living room and I, I remember carving the bowl and I buried the hook in my thigh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, then he put some butterflies on it and I finished the spoon, but you know, <laughs> It just, it's funny how objects like that carry a memory. Yeah. yeah certainly. You know, a lot. So. Wow. Yeah. What, so what, was, what year was that when you, when you were seven? Uh, well, let's see. I'm, it was, I'm 57, May 6th, there'll be 57. Okay. Yeah. So, so 50 years so ago. 50 years ago. 1970? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 1971? 71, I think it would have been. That's so cool. Yeah. So I've been doing this a while. Yeah. And that, you know, that was, um, when we, when we first started the podcast, we made a huge list of all the people we wanted to talk to and, and you were definitely one of them. Um, but we were talking to emailing back and forth with Del Stubbs mm-hmm. right, and right. he, he really urged us to talk to you because of your history kind of in the U S with the spoon carving scene. And, um, he mentioned that how you've been just, just been doing this for over 40 years. Um, yeah. so I think that's really fascinating because there's very few people that we've talked to besides, uh, um, uh, uh, yoga mm-hmm. and who else, there's, I guess Mike Abbott. Right. Right. Um, who've Barn. really been doing it like for most of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I, they've never quit. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, yeah. that's so cool. 
Yeah. So I imagine that's kind of influenced a lot of what you've done in your life, just having those skills and, and that knowledge. And, um, mm. cause I've seen a lot of the woodwork you do. It looks like you do kind of, um, I don't know. I would, I would consider it like a restoration type woodwork. I um, do. It's yeah. But I, I build furniture too. You know, I okay. don't, <clears throat> excuse me. I, you know, I, and repair it and I always have, um, when I was 14, I don't know if this is relevant, but I, I, I signed a full, a full formal apprenticeship to build carriages hmm. nice, and build wheels wow. so, for carriages. So I spent seven years, you know, as a, an apprentice carriage, huh. carriage builder and wheelwright. Wow. And, uh, and that was because of my mentor, Charlie, hmm. as well. So, so he found me the job. So. So you were making like full on uh, steam bent wooden wheels. Yeah. That's yeah. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah we, and, we haven't talked yeah. to any wheel rights. <laughs> yeah. That's. Oh, well, yeah. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, those are the kinds of things I've always done. Every everything's always interested me. That's the thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I can I've relate. never. I, I think if you ask any of the craftspeople that I've ever met, you know, that they're never bored. <laughs> no. what, there's no such thing in my life as boredom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's always something to make or something to see or a book to read or somebody interesting to go um, talk to or, uh, you know, something on the internet. Now you can see anything and try things. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing. Yeah. So, and, 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 and then one thing is, you know, they're all connected. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. You know, one craft is not disconnected from another. It's a, it's a, um, what do they call that? It's a, a cumulative knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just, um, and, and a lot of things are convergent. So you might have be on two parallel tracks doing different things, but they all converge often at, at strange and unknown points. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. And so you, you know, in, in craft has always been that way, um, unless you really specialize, but I, I guess I've never really wanted to specialize too much because mm. there's too much to, in life that interests me. Craft. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so after you kind of got that first experience carving spoons, uh, mm -hmm. it, and you, you said spoon carving is kind of your main thing still. Mm -hmm. Um, how did yeah. that carry you forward? You know, obviously learning to do the wheel, right? That's a very unique skill that I don't think probably a tiny percentage of people in the world know how to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, right. How did, I guess, I guess, how did that spark of the spoon? Cause I always find that interesting people carve a spoon and it leads to so many different things that one spoon. Um, so how did that kind of unfold for you? Well, you know, my, I think spoons just, um, we're, were very interesting to me. I had, I had, uh, I like to eat. <laughs> That's part of it. And I, um, us too. <laughs> oh yeah. So I think it's pretty common yeah. on the whole. Um, but I think, I don't know why, you know, I chose to make that spoon and I think probably at Charlie's encouragement, but I, um, I, I was always fascinated with, with wood and mm -hmm. trees i've always had an affinity for trees mm. um not just climbing in them but you know the wood too and the way they smell and the different leaves and mm -hmm. and i think that was i think that was fostered by my by my mother and my father and um and i had a, a number of uncles who were um 
really good woodworkers. Hmm. And, and, uh, and growing up, I always had um, a basement, my own little bench that my father built for me, hmm. uh, tools and things like that. So I was always encouraged to make things. And my, my mother was a painter and a gardener. Hmm. And nice. she did sewing and all these other things. And, um, and she really liked to cook. And so I know, I, I know that shortly after I made my first spoon, I started making her like spatulas and things like that. And they were fairly straight. And, and I know I had made a bunch of them out of um, cedar shingles Mm. Uh, and they were just, you know, sort of stirring spatulas, but she kept encouraging me to make something with a little more curve in it. Right. Like that. So then I started looking for pieces of wood out in the woods and I spent a lot of time out in the woods looking around with the other neighborhood kids. <laughs> so, but I, I, I was always doing woodworking and, and my mother gave me an ax at probably, I think it was 10 or 11. Nice. And she said, this was the ax I had when I was growing up. Oh, um, wow. That's awesome. And That's so you know that, yeah. And you know, I don't think people get tools that their parents had until usually they're older. Mm-hmm. You know, you think I've got like some, a lot of my grandfather's and uncle's planes, mm, but, yeah. um, but to get something like that at age 10 and it was in, she said, you know, go out and play and go build a log cabin, <laughs> which the native kids and I did. So we were always busy in the woods doing things like that. And I think all of that, you know, leads up to being fascinated with what you can do with wood um, right. for me. And I was always, you know, even things like, um, you know, it's just all these things are coming back now. One of the people that Charlie introduced me to was a fellow named Arthur Linkert. Hmm. And this was at a pretty young age. I probably was, I probably was about the same age as when I got the ax. And he boarded his horses at this guy's farm and, Arthur Linkert has his father came over in a flour barrel in a ship. Hmm. Oh my goodness. I know this sounds bizarre, but it's true. Yeah. And he, he was um, from uh, Galatia, which is now, I think, Czechoslovakia. Okay. Um, and um, his father was a cobbler and a willow basket maker. Hmm. And so after making spoons and spatulas and things, I met this Arthur Linkert and I was always fascinated with horses um, because I was around them with, with Charlie. But Arthur Linkert taught me how to do willow baskets. Oh, wow. And his he still had his father's um, willow cuttings that were growing on the farm. Nice. And his father would say, you know, you can't come home for lunch or dinner until you've woven several baskets. <laughs> And then they would be sold locally to huh. the neighbors. Um, so, you know, I learned to make willow baskets at a, a young age from this guy who was almost blind from, hmm. um, but he, his fingers knew what to do. <laughs> I mean, he could find my mistakes in the weaving hmm. and undo wow. it. So, you know, he was really good at it. And um, so, so Charlie introduced me to people like that. And uh, so I learned to do things like, like willow baskets and, birch bark baskets and birch bark uh, weaving anyway. And, uh, and then at age 14, you know, I, when I got my job as a apprentice wheelwright, it just all seemed connected 
to me. There didn't seem anything any different than mm. to me. You know, it seemed a natural progression. Right, right. So I don't want to keep going on. So, so keep <laughs> no, going. it's please it's, do. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I love hearing this aspect. So, um, yeah, but ask questions. I, I'm just sort of. So um, once you were done with the real wheelwright apprenticeship, what was your <clears throat> next move? Um, well, the so then I went on to I was by then I was just making you know a lot of spoons every day, mm. as well as doing my regular um, work during the day. Okay. And um, and at that point, you know, Charlie and I would sit and make piles of spoons and butter knives, and then he would light a fire, and then he would throw. <laughs> the ones that I liked into the fire. <laughs> he was, you know, he taught me a lot about getting rid of your work, you know, not uh, being attached to it. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah. And hmm. uh, so, he, you know, those were really, I was really mad. You know, sometimes I, I was doing, <laughs> um, I'd be going, doing demonstrations someplace and I'd go off to the bathroom or take a break and he would come back. I'd come back and I'd say, you know, where's my, birch root burl spoon and he'd say oh i gave it away <laughs> i would be furious and, but you know that was part of that learning wow uh, that's incredible you know, that, that you, you know nothing's permanent yeah and mm. and what's funny is that you know i became a museum curator which is about collecting things <laughs> right and preserving <laughs> things forever people. yeah and it's not and that's really not what it's about right. i mean it is but it isn't as well. So, um, yeah. huh. it's so amazing. Are, it's amazing. I think the human, like, uh, are just our connections to the object and like our, our need for permanence is, I think can be detrimental to who we are. Yeah. Like as you know, just our psyche is sometimes just so wound up on having something forever and just holding on to an object. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. And I, I, I see that as a museum curator, I saw that. A lot. I'm sure. You know, that because things have a given lifespan, no matter what they are. Mm -hmm. um, and and they eventually just fall apart and trying to preserve them mm. is, at some point becomes kind of ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and more so when you think about, in some cases, like you um, think about some of Jackson Pollock's works, which are, which he purposefully did on really shitty paper. <laughs> you know so that they would decay right i didn't um, know that okay. yeah and um i think it's jackson pollock and then and then you know you can look at banksy you know he put that shredder right. in that remember that painting that went for to auction recently no, I, I don't know this now no i think there was i think banksy had a uh i can't remember the painting it was a, i think it was a little girl and it went the hammer blow ended for the amount of money and the, he'd had a built in painting or shredder in the frame and it started to shred the, the, pig, the painting, you know, and it was all about the impermanence of, Oh, that's great. And he, so he must've started it himself or something. I don't know how it worked, oh. but it's really clever, you know, yeah. talking about the impermanence of things and, you know, the value of things. Right. So, but, um, and I always tell people, you know, with spoons, especially, that if they don't use them, they'll disappear. Mm, mm. And they usually do. Huh. You know, so, and there's, they disappear if you use them anyway. They crack and then you, right. 
yeah. you know, eventually, or you wear them out if you use them a lot, just yeah. like a shirt, you know, that you really yeah. like. Yeah. You, yeah. Know, you flip the collar around, but eventually the fabric wears out and it's time yeah. to get a new one or you just keep repairing it till it's threadbare. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> so, now that you yeah. say that, it's funny. Um, <clears throat> the one piece I have of yours, I bought at North house when I was there in 2015, oh. it's a, a butter spreader uh-huh. and I really, I love it. It's a beautiful, very, um, delicate, very beautiful lines on it, but it's changed significantly in its shape because we've used it so much. Mm. Um, yeah. And I've actually had to a couple of times sharpen the edge again because it kind of dulled. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Toast it, is really abrasive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it's, I just, it's interesting you mentioned that aspect of the craft because we don't talk about that very much. Like what's, yeah. the, what's the actual lifespan of the, of the object and how does it change and that it's not a permanent thing. Because you know, right. I feel like it's easy when you're buying something, especially from, you know, say – there's somebody you follow on Instagram, you really like their work, and then you eventually buy the thing. I think it's easy to get stuck in the idea, like, oh, I'm going to preserve this thing because I bought it from whoever. Yeah. yeah Instead yeah. of just using it and like the use being part of the value, and then eventually it's going to, like, for example, I had a cup from Jared mm-hmm. and yeah. I loved it. I used it all the time. And mm-hmm. then uh, we have uh, an event on the farm here, kind of like a festival, and I was, I had it around the bonfire. And I, I sat on the ground and I went to go do something and I came back and my wife's like, uh, my dad, he accidentally stepped on your cup and it's in the fire now. And she was, <laughs> and she, she was actually laughing as it was burning. Yeah. And I was, oh, yeah. I was really upset. Yeah, but yeah, then, yeah. you know, yeah. once I calmed down, I was like, well, that's part of the life of that. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been learning to do that actually too myself. Cause I, uh, we ha- actually, my wife and I were in this morning, we were having this discussion cause I, uh, I grabbed a piece of uh, a blacksmithing piece that I had made, you know, when I first started blacksmithing. It's just like a leaf, mm-hmm. you know, like a squirrel leaf. I had it up on the wall and I grabbed it and I was like, oh, wow, like this is terrible. How did I like there's, you know, the metal has so many cold shuts in it. And I'm like, how did I do this? It's like, well, you don't have any of your old work. You should hold on to this one. I'm like, I don't because I gave it all away, you know, and I'm like, this is great because yeah. I want it to live elsewhere. I want it. I want someone else to enjoy it. And uh I've been learning not to hold on to things. I think the beauty of watching something age is so important. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it brings me joy because, you know, I, it looks so nice and new when you first get it. And it's by the time it's deteriorating, you're like, wow, this is, this is, did its purpose. It, it like, it lived a good life, you know, yeah. essentially it did its exactly. purpose. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, I think you're right on with that. And I, I think that's what, what makes, I mean, that's what makes old objects so interesting is learning how to read them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as from a museum or a material culture point of view, you right. know, if you can, if if you're not only reading the material, the wood, the clay, the glass, the metal, the composition of any of those things, but and then and then also knowing, you know, the 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 history of the time in which an object was created, right? You know, that's what makes the object important, and it's the connection to people. Right. You know, an object in and of itself doesn't mean much mm. in one sense it, right. if it doesn't have a connection to people. And you can, and you know, when you buy something like at an antique store, like if I were to go and buy an old wooden spoon, you know, an object like that, it'll show you the wear patterns of the person who mm. created it. Mm. Yes. And, um, and a really thoughtful repair, like on an ale bowl or something like that, uh, shows you how valued it something is mm, right but 
but then you then it, I always I'm looking at things and going, well, if, if this object could talk, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the those are the interesting things to me. And you know, if could your mug have told about the fire, or not the fire, <laughs> but being stepped on, you know, those sorts <laughs> right. of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's life kind of has a, an end right then and there, but yeah, but lots of objects keep going, right? Yeah. And get passed down, and yeah. you know, and then then and then that's why I say, you know, if, I think it's important that objects disappear in and out of your life that way. Mm. I think it's really important. Yeah. On the flip side of things too, because I, I do see the the value in preserving something. You know, like yes. in a museum oh, yeah. setting, there's so much knowledge there for like you know the modern world to take from. You know, like how is this made? Can we replicate it? Can we make something like it? Yeah. So I think that's important in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And I see why someone would spend so much time and effort and money into preserving something. But it is again like you know, it's it's an object. We use it. We enjoy it. It disappears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> make another one. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that you know the the whole point, at least my philosophy with with objects is that I make is that you know I make something and I want it to be respectful of the tree from which it came, the mm-hmm. best use I can do make with that object, mm-hmm. and um, I want it to be beautiful and feel good in the hand and be functional. That's my ultimate goal, but. Mm-hmm. They're not mutually exclusive at all, mm. and uh, and I think I think they're mutually inclusive. Mm. I think the more you use in, the more you think about how an object is used and a function, the more beautiful you can make it. Mm. Yeah, certainly. And um, and I think there are plenty of objects that that show that. Um, I'm trying. I couldn't give you a for instance right off the hand, but I mean just. You know, a really elegant and beautifully and um, made carving knife is a lot more wonderful to use than something that's kind of clunky. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's something that's tangible you can feel in your hand, and it's the same with the spoon. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the same with it, um, like a birch bark box. Right. Uh, it's the same with a car. You know. Yeah. It's a a car that gets you from point A to point B is really all we need. But it, right. you know the one that's more, a little more, as as Harley Repsol says, has something for the eye. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's the one that you're probably going to pick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and the, but all those things are really um, important. That's that's sort of a, um. I guess you'd call it a tacitly inherent aesthetic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that humans carry with them. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, know. it's in our nature to, I think, uh, you know, want something aesthetically pleasing, but right. that's not always, that doesn't always mean good functionality, you know, like something is right. beautiful, but is it really going to do the job I want it to do? Right. Yep. Yeah. So I think we're slightly skewed. The human brain is slightly skewed more towards aesthetics. And then uh-huh. when you actually get to use the thing, you're like, wow, this thing is beautiful, but it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, feel good in my hand. It's not doing the job I want it to do. So Yeah. I think there are plenty of things that get over designed. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and they're not the and, but the function is lost. There's still yeah. maybe function as like a 
I mean, I think of silverware, you know, mm. you see all these overly designed silverware, they look great sitting on a table at a setting, Yeah, but they aren't comfortable to use because they're either the, the handles are too thin or right, you know, right. sharp edges or something. Yeah. They're, they're just not, not as interesting or not as, there's not as much care put into the, mm-hmm. the functional design of it as there is right. the look of the item. Right. And that's just one one thing yeah this reminds me of uh one of my favorite books is called how buildings learn by Stuart brand yes it's a great book yeah Yeah. it's a wonderful book but his whole um thesis that you know architecture is a failed um a failed practice because it, it more often than not creates buildings that are not useful to the people that use them mm and that the most functional pieces of architecture we have are ones that were changed over time based on the use that they're being put right. to. Right. And I feel like craft um, embodies that kind of uh, philosophy where you look at, I mean, I'm sure you've seen this a lot doing museum, museum work in the, in the kind of Scandinavian tradition that you're mm-hmm. um, rooted in, that all of the things that we have that came from the past, it's for a reason that they were designed a way or made a certain way because you know the tree necessitated that or the use necessitated a certain design or tweak or whatever and i to me that's the most fascinating aspect of sloyd and and craft work in general is is how it comes out of um oh you're kind out more can you hear me no you want oh we cut out for a second yeah Uh, hold on my getting a little notice on my computer one second oh technology (laughs) Let's see. I stopped hearing you for a second there through my headphones. I think we're oh, back. I can hear you now. You know, I, I um uh okay. I did some things on my computer before this and I think it kinda hmm. threw some something in the gear, I don't know. But as I was saying, the uh the yeah, the all the kind of the craft traditions they come out of um like a sense of place and a and a uh a lifestyle, a way of living. Mm. And it's mm-hmm. less about the object. It's more about, it's more about the use. Like for example, when I was at North house, um, Roger Abramson was there and he brought out a bunch of beautiful old bowls that he had. Right. And he told a really cool story about these intricate painted ale bowls. He had several of them, mm-hmm. um, very ornate, the design of it. And then very intricate, but simple painting on both the inside and outside on some of them. Mm-hmm. And to some, that would seem like, oh, well, that's just like decoration. But he described how that wasn't. It was all of the things on that bowl meant something to that family. And they mm. would sit down at a table together for a special meal. And they'd have their home-brewed ale in there. And they would all dip out of it. And it was like a ritual. So it served a function. It wasn't necessarily like a the most utilitarian function, so to, to speak. But it was important to their life and their their way of life, their culture. So it was a cultural you know, object um, yeah. focal point for yeah. those people. Yes. So, so there's just so many cool layers with craft that I really appreciate. And um, it sounds like that's kind of what drives you a lot is that understanding of how everything fits in and, and how they all overlap to the different skills and the different objects overlap. Cause if you think this is one thing I am kind of obsessed with is if you look at a traditional culture, the, more often than not, people had a lot of skills. They weren't specialized so much. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. And we've kind of lost that today. I think that's why people are drawn to craft and handmade things because it kind of 
speaks to that aspect of our um, humanity of just being mm-hmm. more generalist species than, than specialized. Right. Right. There's a, there's a, oh, I don't, I can't say it in Norwegian, but there's a, there's a wonderful saying in Norwegian um, that's uh, he who cannot do everything is a fool. Mm-hmm. And the whole, the whole point being that, you know, you may find yourself at some point alone or in need of something. And if you can't make it yourself, you're kind of shit out of luck. (laughs) I don't know if you can say that in a podcast, but um, you can, you can, but you know, the, the thing is, I think uh, this is a good transition for, uh, because I think the thing is the craft I, I finding, I'm finding more and more with social media Mm-hmm. that craft is becoming um it's like it belongs to certain people mm-hmm. you know there's sort of this ownership of things yeah mm-hmm. um that people want you know this is my design this is my right, right. little tweak here and there and 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 one thing in the museum field that i've found i, I i'll just bring up this and i won't harp on it um <laughs> you know the kayak spoon yeah we yeah. all have heard of that yeah, we, and there are several people who've said that um, that was their design, right? <laughs> right. And I was like, no, this is this is like two or three hundred years old. You didn't design it. Yeah, and I and I can I could show you pictures in museums of spoons that Native Americans have been making for you know centuries, feasting mm-hmm. spoons right. that are exactly the same, you know, almost in every detail. Mm. So it's not. And they they come from natural forms, mm-hmm. and um, and that's what these kayaks, quote unquote, kayak spoons are the same. Mm. Um, they, they you know they're just sort of a natural outcrop of the piece of wood that you get. Yeah, and uh, and and also the way the way we work wood, you know, one feeds into the other. You can't really separate them. Yeah, right. part of it's right. a physics thing. But, um, you know, the way a knife works through wood, you have to work with it that way. It doesn't work the other way. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, I think one of the things is that, um, that craft belongs to everybody. Mm. It's, it's part of our workaday world and it always has been. Yeah. And, um, and so we've all, we were, we've all been generalists. There, there have also always been, specialists in craft and day-to-day living you know like the person who can make points um in a in a tribal group yeah was probably pretty well revered like someone who was a, a medicine who was really good with medicine right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but for most people they had to have the skills to make all of their things that they needed yeah but in the in the native tradition you still have the notion that you're an important person in the vill- in the village or the tribe mm. because you have skills that only you can contribute mm. because of right. your talents. Right. And and I think our the way we live today in our more isolated society society, you know, outside of COVID, um, we become so specialized that we're we've we've lost our path to our own humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think craft reconnects us to those things. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. I think it, 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 it generates, I don't know if it generates, but it, I think it rekindles those genes that have been dormant in a lot of us. Mm. 
yeah. that get passed down, but are and are kind of sleeping in us. And yeah, yeah. So, like, I can't knit to save my life. I mean, I've taken lessons. Mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've gotten all the stuff to do it, and I, I just can't do it. But you know, I can do other things. Yeah. So, uh, so I have to go buy my sweaters and mittens. You know, <laughs> but that's fine. Or trade for them. But I, I just wish I could. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I think that's, I think that's what people really are. As you mentioned, you know, there's a longing to, to connect with the, I think the real uh, tangible things in our lives that society sort of makes us, you know, uh, I almost want to say hedonistically, um, aware <laughs> of, mm. you know, there's a certain amount of sensuality in life that seems to be okay if it's kind of commercially driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but there's another part of it that's really necessary for being human. Mm-hmm. It gets ignored, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I think we've lost that completely. And so I, yeah, that's I, why I think, you know, spoon carving has exploded. Maybe it's plateaued at this point. I don't know. But, or is, you know, at least maintaining a plateau. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, but I do think that that's just, as I've said in some of my descriptions for classes, I think it's a, I think it's a a gate, like a gateway drug. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And knitting is the same too. You know, knitting leads, people start knitting and then they go to crocheting and then they do tatting and and then, you know, who knows what else they get into. And then the next thing you know, they're doing fabric design and batik and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Or they're raising sheep, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I actually know quite a few people. That's how they got into raising sheep was through uh, knitting. Wow. Yeah. And it's wonderful. I, you know, I, but the thing is, all of this is, that's the way it used to be. Right. Right. You know, you knit, you had sheep. Everybody had sheep. You all knew how to, the men and women knew how to knit and spin. And some were better at it than others. And, Mm -hmm. you know, most women could could cut wood better than anybody can today because mm-hmm. yeah. they, yeah. they used an ax all the time for cooking and yeah and, and making things that's right yeah it. yeah i have a, a friend in in northern michigan and she uh for a while she ran like a historic air uh kind of like an airbnb where she had this oh, yeah. house this historic house and everything uh-huh. in it was period um and she did these really cool wood stove cooking classes and um, she oh, talks yeah. about that how obviously how we've lost the art of cooking on a wood stove. It's mm-hmm. like, it's just, cause I was actually talking to uh, my neighbor who's uh, in his sixties recently. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me about how his grandmother, she made every meal on a wood stove yep. for seven or 10 people all year, whether it was 90 degrees or, you know, yeah. freezing, she was making right. food on that wood stove. And, uh, but my friend in Michigan in her classes, she talks about how important the wood preparation is for a wood cooking stove and that every uh woman knew how to prepare the wood because without the right wood and the right size you would be you know struggling to raise the heat or lower the heat and it's just amazing all these little things it's just like in spoon carving like you carve your first spoon it's real you know rugged generally Mm -hmm. but once Mm -hmm. you get like 10 20 30 40 spoons in there's so many little things that you're so much muscle memory that you retain Right. And it's like the muscle memory is the most important part. That's why I feel like uh, if we go back in time and we were to, you know, talk to a person on a farm in the 1800s, you know, mm-hmm. 
all the different skills we're talking about would have been almost invisible to them. Like, you know, mm. knowing how to fish or hunt or split wood or fell a tree or because yeah. it's all muscle memory. It wasn't like they had to, <laughs> like us, we have to, or speaking for myself, um, you have to learn all these things that I was never mm-hmm. taught. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Watch, watch a YouTube video, then go do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's so many things that I think we don't, um, we we don't remember about that are that are probably in us genetically. Sure. Do we have to loosen up? <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put um, it. Um, out of the, or tease out of the the tangle of genes that that we um we have, right. and you know, and those are com. It's a commonality of, b- between all of us. Mm-hmm. In our and I I just think that that that's where doing all this craft and Sloyd work just you know it's it's so good for people. Mm-hmm. You've always known that. I mean, yeah, you know, like Alex and I've talked about for years about the stories that people and you, you probably can chime in on this too. The number of people who say, Oh, you know, I just can't wait to get back from the office and go make a spoon or butter knife or knit or something like that. And, you know, it just, it's so healing and it frees me up and it's so spiritually good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And and for some people, it it changes the course of their lives. Yeah, hundred percent, certainly. Yeah. So anyway, I can think of can uh, a video I watched recently. I I really gotten into uh, making knives after talking with Reed Schwartz, <laughs> obviously. So I've been making knives and uh, oh, have yeah. been really obsessed with this guy's work. I don't know his name, but he's off the uh, he's in Canada. He's off the coast in British Columbia, I think. Um, on an island somewhere and he makes traditional Japanese like tantos and katanas and all sort of stuff. And you probably know him. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've, you've heard of him or seen his work, Maybe. but I, you know, I really delved into the history of making like samurai swords and how it was done traditionally in Japan. And, uh-huh. um, I think it was on the history channel. There was a video of this guy who okay. has his family lineages, like making steel, mm. like making raw steel, like mm. huge furnace, you know, mm-hmm. they, they cook whatever for how many hours, for days, essentially. And then they have, like, the raw material at the bottom of this thing. And um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, in Japan, their family, like, has a history, right? So, like, mm-hmm. right. this guy does this. His dad did this. Mm-hmm. His great-grandfather did this. His great-great-great-grandfather did this. So, like, they preserve that, you know? And then the sword that's being made goes through so many different people. Each person has to do one thing. One person sharpens the sword. One person, you know, puts engravings on the sword, you know. So, and also their family lineage is the same thing. It's like that was the specialty that Mm. they've done in their family for so many years. And I, we don't have that here. I feel like, like it's hard to, like, I I don't know what my, I know what my dad does, but I don't know what his dad did or my grandfather, great grandfather did. So, I, I feel like there's a lot of value in that, that these these uh, things are preserved in these cultures where, like, they know what their family has done for many, many years, mm-hmm. the specialty that they've done, you know? So. Yeah, and, I and you know, it's, it's an amazing... That's why I think it ends up getting kind of genetically imprinted in you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In, in some ways. Yeah. Um, but even even for people who do baking, mm. yeah, know, I think... I think you know, you get a family-run bakery, and everybody runs, you know, runs the bakery in the family. Right. I think, 
I think I don't think there's any difference. Yeah, and doing, and that's that's part of handwork too. Yeah, yeah. that's the art of everyday living that that we, you know, that's starting to come back. Mm -hmm. For sure. um, With craft, you know, you can't separate the food stuff from the the slow food from slow craft. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't. I don't think. No, no, definitely not. But, it's, yeah, um, they go together. I mean, that's my, that's kind of my tilt on the whole thing is like food because I mm-hmm. love to cook food and yeah. grow food. Right, and right. so making the utensils to do all of that is <laughs> why I love doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you about your, uh, your kind of history in the world of teaching. Um, oh, okay. it says on your Instagram profile that you're one of the founding teachers at North House Folk School. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, you know, people may or may not be familiar with North House, but that's a, a school up on, in Grand Marais, uh, Minnesota on Lake Superior. Right. And uh, how many years has that been around? I think it started in 1997. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And um, so what is that, 23 years? What is yep. it? It's 2000. Yeah, 23 yep. years. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, we didn't know when we started it that it would last that long, but it's it's grown quite a bit it's it's um a bit different now than it was when we started it yeah but um you know uh i started teaching not there but when i was 17 hmm. wow. at, at um uh concordia language camps which is up in i can't remember the lake now but it was i think it was on cass lake hmm. which you wouldn't know but um it was a big it's a big lake in northern minnesota Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, they they had language camps, and because Charlie's wife was Finnish, and they had we knew I knew all these Finnish crafts. I ended up doing Finnish, te- you know, teaching hmm. up there. And then before that, Charlie would have me demonstrating at all these different events that he would get asked to go to, hmm. um, like Festival of Nations, and we would make birch bark rings for everybody that came by, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And, but I learned to start teaching up at up at a, a, cra- a language camp, and so I never I've never not I don't remember te- teaching much before then other than de- doing demonstrations. But that's part of it. And, and the, um, but my main teaching has been at North House, um, and I you know when I started twenty three years ago, and then also teaching at. Um, uh, the Milan Village Art School, which is mm. where the spoon gathering is originated, right? And wow, um, which is a little little art school, kind of in the middle of nowhere, but um, was really it's really a, a community effort. You know, it's more like a folk school setting actually than than anything. Yeah, but they, that's teach, what I've heard. they teach other arts as well. So. Um, like North House does too, but their their focus is a little different. It mm-hmm. tends to focus on fine arts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas whereas Grand Marais has an art school that focuses as much on fine art as does North House on craft. Oh, so, okay. So they have the two options up there, but yeah. So I've taught I've taught all kinds of you know classes from blacksmithing and willow baskets and birch bark weaving and. Um, I'm trying to think of what else I've done up there. Um, did sewing, 
uh, early on because we all had to pull from everything we knew. Hmm. And so, um, so those things were, were in the early years, you know, we, there was a small group of teachers. And so we all were teaching everything we could to get the school to go and, and working uh, to make all the catalogs really interesting with the hmm. diversity of classes, things like that. So, so it, uh, it's, it sounds like it started out as like a really grassroots operation. It was. And, and, you know, it's interesting too, is that, um, or at least I don't know if you, you haven't interviewed Mark Hansen, he'd be somebody interesting hmm. to interview. Um, who founded the school. It was his idea. He he taught a kayak building class in the Coast Guard boat station that's across the harbor from where North House is. Mm. And then he, he saw the value right away in in having people build these kayaks and in the community it created between them all and the and actually some of the um some of the healing that that kind of craft work could do with people. Mm-hmm. And um, it really opened them up and broke down a lot of barriers and have difficulties that they were having. And he saw that in the first several years of, that the school started North House as well with people when he had people like uh, veterans who were having difficulty reconnecting in society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but the school, you know, it, it really catered to a, a really broad range of people in the initial, um, I'd say probably five to 10 years. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was really, a, 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 and then, and then we watched it grow, you know, all these other places started up or tried to start up. A lot of them failed. Mm-hmm. And now Minnesota has huge number of, of folk schools. Oh, really? And I didn't they, know that. Yeah. And it, what's interesting is, you know, folk schools come from the Danish tradition mm-hmm. um, uh, started by um, Frederick Grunvig. And Grunvig was a, a Lutheran minister who was sort of exiled by the Lutheran hierarchy because he he really felt that they weren't serving the people mm-hmm. and that the school, the government wasn't either. So he railed against the, the Lutheran uh, hierarchy and the government, and he, he called them out on it. And then, in the, I think it was in 1851, he started the folk school movement in Denmark. Ah. And then the folk schools, and and actually in Minnesota, the first folk school was in 1861. Um, hmm. In Tyler, Minnesota, which um, was called Donabo, and it's still an active folk school the oldest folk school in the country. And wow. it's, um, but the whole point was that it's, it was about peer people teaching each other what they needed to know to make right. it. And, uh, and it was about that everybody should be learning in a non-competitive environment. And mm-hmm. so that's the way Mark Hansen set it up at North house. And, and I'm, I have a math learning disability. So, I really appreciate that non-competitive spirit. Mm-hmm. I, I just hate taking tests and I, I can't do yeah. math but really well, but it, it's a really important aspect, I think, of schooling in that, at least for people who want to do craft work yeah. Yeah. Just, or anything really, but you know, you're learning at your own pace and you're learning from people who 
who knows a subject really well. So yeah, that, that makes so much sense because <clears throat> I teach. Um, my wife and I have a garden that we teach elementary school kids out of, and mm-hmm. you can really see that when. Um, when the kids are immersed in learning and they're not like sitting down, like you have to learn this to pass this, uh, it's such a different, it's like they learn without knowing it. They're not, you know, being forced to memorize something. They just, you'd show them how to do it. And then they, you know, most of the time they remember it, especially if they do it multiple times, they'll, they'll, it'll become ingrained. And I think that's, I think I love that. I love your description of the history of the folk school because I feel like schooling today, especially in modern America, just has so many flaws that leads people to become aimless and to lack kind of skill, honestly. Um, yeah, including people skills. Yeah. All right. So, you know, yeah. That's a really, yeah. And, and especially more so nowadays, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. So, because uh, when I went to North House, I mean, it's now it's obviously very much bigger in mm-hmm. terms of footprint and in terms of like the organization. Um, cause when I went there, I was impressed by it's like, you know, it's a formal nonprofit with all the different, you know, uh, yeah. People and just the grounds are, you know, beautiful and buildings are amazing. Um, mm-hmm. so it is just cool to hear how it, it grew out of a bunch of people coming together and wanting to spread this knowledge that they already had. And they're not like, you know, some accredited teacher or whatever, they're just right. sharing what they know and, and passing it on. Um, and I, I met some of the coolest people that I've ever met at that, the event that I was at, just so many different people from different walks of life coming to learn about bowl turning. And then I was there for, uh, uh, what's it called? It was like a bowl gather, not a bowl gather. Oh, it's uh, a symposium. Yeah. The symposium. Yeah. It was like the electric lathe turners, and then right. the and then the foot powered lathe turners, um, right? Right. Just such an interesting eclectic group of, group of people, and and um, same thing there, like having a formal class time, mm-hmm. but then afterwards, like everyone just hanging out and and oh yeah, how that it kind of like that was almost, I mean the class was amazing, but it was almost like that part was better in a way because you're just like people are hanging out, carving spoons and playing music mm-hmm. and drinking and having a laugh um i feel like that's a big part of the folk school experience as well as like the cultural aspect well you know how many of us you know you learn you learn as much outside of the classroom as you do in yeah mm-hmm. not more you know and i i that's the way i always felt yeah i mean i um and i i was told that a young when I was fairly young, you know, that I think it may have been one of my teachers. She said, you know, your parents don't, your parents don't raise you. <laughs> the rest of the world does, mm. you know, and it, and then, and it didn't make sense to me right away, but it's true. You know, how much of the time you spend with your family and in, in a classroom, you know, it's not that much really. It does for a while, but then the rest, all of it, there's so much learning that goes on outside of the classroom yep, right. and outside of the home. Okay. You know, you just, you're always picking stuff up. And I, yeah. I do think that people, you know this, it's just, it's kind of innate, but you people, people search for what they need and then they go find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether they make the right decision 
it seems the right thing to do at the time. You know, if you go into something that turns out to be a bad decision, but it may have seemed right at the time, (laughs) you know, you just don't know. But so we all go seeking. And I think folk schools are, um, and, and the people we hang out with, like after classes, you know, the people you gravitate to mm-hmm. really purposeful seeking. Mm-hmm. And, but I think it's not, um, what's the, it's not conscious necessarily. I think it's kind of an unconscious need. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That we go to. So I don't know if that makes sense, but it does to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of classes, um, I've seen a few pictures. I know you and Jared have taught a lot of spoon carving classes together. Mm, Right. And uh, to kind of come back to the spoon carving aspect, I thought one of the coolest things about your classes is that you and Jared bring out this pile of spoons made by other people. Oh, right. And I know when I went to Jared's place and saw his spoon collection, it was really enlightening to just see all the different spoons and feel them and and use them. And um, Mm -hmm. I learned so much just doing that. Uh, I feel like that's a really special part of teaching someone to carve spoons is to show them the possibilities. And um, I've always appreciated your style of spoon carving because it's very, I don't know, the the way you carve spoons to me is one of the most unique ways, uh, hmm. especially your bowl shapes and your handle shapes. Um, I, I've many a times tried to, to imitate your designs and, and not gotten anywhere close to them. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of curious you. about like what, as you, as time went on, what influenced your carving and um, kind of how you how you evolved your style and, and approach to spoon carving? Uh, well, I I probably would I'd probably be a shaker, you know, in a past life. <laughs> um, I'm kind of I really like spare uh. and or minimalist and mm. on the whole, and I and I. Um, I'm very fond of curves. I, I I tell my students when I'm teaching, I find spoons really sexy. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And and the reason is because I never get tired. I, I love the the play of curves and the way light plays mm. on curves. And in this, by the same token, I also like how facets can be introduced into spoon carving. And uh, and you can continue a facet all the way around a spoon. Right, right. faded in and out in different parts where right. you need to or where you can, and the way the light hits those facets. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, so that's been part of the reason I like doing make. That's what's influenced some of my spoon carving. Hmm. The other part is I'm always interested in, and this sounds kind of odd, but um, the spaces or the lines that show up outside of the spoon they're not part of the spoon but they're Hmm. i I feel like there are intersecting lines that continue off of spoons Hmm. that make uh make geometric shapes that we don't see Hmm. it's sort of the negative spaces between between objects right and um and how those lines intersect each other so there's that and i i've always liked playing with things like with regards to like a bowl shape you know can i vary an octagon Hmm. or a hexagon or a a pentagon or something or a 
a triangle and make, you know, what can I do to play with that to make it, um, make those shapes hmm. play out through the handle, the neck, the spoon bowl and the back. Right. And, and, you know, and play them all out. Sometimes they don't work at all. <laughs> like just plain triangles are really hard to do. Yeah. You, you, they just aren't very user friendly. Right. <laughs> uh, except for maybe a grapefruit spoon, but I'm not huh. into those so much for using <laughs> them for grapefruit. But, um, but that's really it. And and then I, I just like, I also like just finding just the right natural bends. Mm. So that's, I tend, I tend really not to work against wood grain. Yeah. Whenever possible. Right. Do you, do you know, use to, a lot of crooks? Is that, or bend, bendy pieces? Yeah, I do. And I really like to show off the different wood mm-hmm. words that I'm using. Mm-hmm. You know, I, people, I get handed, um, people say, you know, I can't make anything out of this piece of wood. And I'm like, ha ha, you know, <laughs> I can, um, you know, whether it becomes a lid for a birch bark box or, or a, a small spoon, but I, I just love trying to make things out of out of really difficult pieces of wood. Yeah, the challenge of it, yeah. unlike a lot of challenges in my life, which I haven't worked on. You know, <laughs> are different. So that's great. And I, I think the other thing that I really recently I've I've been very interested in is how thin a piece of wood you need to put in crank and make mm. a spoon really useful. Mm. So I've been I've been really interested in that. Hmm. Um, you know I'm down to like three eighths of an inch. Really? Wow. Really, you can uh, <laughs> you can get a board, you know, or cut a piece of wood that's a half to three eighths of an inch thick, and you can still put in enough crank and make it usable. You know, it might not be the one you use for picking for for you as a spoon to use for your soup. Right. But for oatmeal or ice cream or yogurt or just generally keeping your pocket because it's flat. Oh, right, right. But but still having enough of a a crank to it to make it really elegant and interesting for the eye. Those are things that really... Because I, you know, what I I find really funny is, you know, there's this movement towards, I don't know if it's a movement, but this is trend towards making really flat spoons because of spoon mules. Oh right. Oh yeah. Fairly flat, not always, but but because the way the spoon meal is is designed, you know, you can it works great with making long handled, fairly flat spoons and um, with very minimal crank um, because of the jaws of it. Right. Um, that being said, you know, you can also by just varying the pitch of a handle, put in a lot more crank. Mm-hmm. in a flat piece of wood without bending it you know you mm-hmm. don't have to bend it i mean but um i just think it's funny that that that's become a trend and those are <laughs> you know really work work that way um so i i i just i tend to really want to make curvy spoons mm-hmm. um that's just my thing yeah because i you know i just grew up with with um lots of flat spoons yep um and then i also that my parents used for cooking but not wooden spoons for eating mm-hmm. and uh, i actually just recently was going through a bunch of 
spoons that my sister at my sister's house that we grew up with. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because there were probably 20 or 30 spoons that were really vastly different Mm. Hmm. one from another. And I think those, you know, having those to look at growing up were really, uh, really important. Yeah. You know, you, you see just the variety of shapes in one, basically one form. So, but those, those are the sorts of things. And, and I'm lucky in that as a museum curator, I got to go, you know, you, I can go to a collection and just ask to see all the spoons, hmm. you know, of different, you know, whether they're silver or wood and, um, or pewter, whatever they are. And they're just, they're so mind boggling. <laughs> the designs. Yeah. So is that, is that a common piece that ends up in museums, a spoon? Because I, I don't know if I've ever seen a spoon at a museum. <laughs> Lots of museums have spoons. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't think people, that's the other thing. I, I don't think people think about museums as, they, they look at them online if they put a lot of stuff online. Yeah. But museums exist for people. Right. right. And, mm-hmm. uh which sounds kind of silly, but museums are what they have in their collections belongs to the public Hmm. or they wouldn't be nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And so you have every reason and every right to go and ask to see all those objects. Hmm. So if you, if you go to a museum and you, you know, you have to make an appointment, but Mm -hmm. The, if they've got hundreds and hundreds of objects and they're all in there and you want to see them, that's their job is to get those out hmm. nice. and, and let you see them in a, in a nice controlled environment so that you don't walk off with all the spoons. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, that's, that's kind of interesting because I don't think people do that enough. I know I haven't. Uh, yeah. Now that you're talking about it, I'm kind of curious to yeah. look around and see what's around here and what museums there are and, Right. Yeah. What kind of artifacts that relate to spoons or or train that they might have? Right. And most most museums, not maybe art museums, but uh, but if they have a decorative arts collection and historical society museums, they've hmm. they've got stuff like that. They've okay. got everyday objects. Cool. Nice. They probably you know baskets for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, they'll have turned plates, turned bowls. Hmm. Um, they'll have all kinds of silverware for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, hand forged cooking implements usually, and hand forged knives because that's what everybody used to have. Yeah, so, right. you know, stuff like that. So they're just resources all over. That's a great tip. I mean, I know I've seen you know like Jared or or Robin go to museums in you know Scandinavia or England, and mm-hmm. but it always felt out of touch. It felt out of reach for me. Like, well, I'm not, you know. I'm not qualified enough to go look at a museum collection. <laughs> well, and that's the, you know, a lot, I think a lot of times people feel that museums are elitist and maybe they are, um, but they're becoming less so because they're having to justify their existence. <laughs> True. And, and, or they'll, <laughs> or they aren't going to make it. Right. 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 And getting um, government subsidies and money from all these organizations right. to keep them going. Yeah. And, you know, and the, plus the fact that you get, you get museums that are, um, stuck in one particular area mm-hmm. and they're having to d- really diversify their collecting mm-hmm. in order to make their audiences grow mm-hmm. or, or grow in audiences they say 
and I think I think you know the more the more people go to the museums and ask to see objects that they're interested in, right. the better off those museums are going to be anyway. Hmm. Um, so it's it's an important it's an important back and forth that that we as quote unquote users of the museum yeah of museums it's a service we can provide them hmm. you know other other than just going and touring them mm-hmm. so right right that's those are good. they're really good resources yeah that's great that's great information and advice yeah um, so. and th- this all makes me think um so growing up in minnesota uh mm-hmm. you know i know personally because my grandfather um is from there that there's a lot of scandinavian um heritage there uh did you grow up as your family from scandinavia and did you grow up kind of immersed in that outside of your mentor uh i have on my mother's side see she's mostly mostly scotch and irish okay and in in english and then on my father's side they're swedish and norwegian Mm -hmm. um and then with a little bit of of uh english in there mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. and and so but i you know growing up around the twin cities st paul minneapolis uh i was always exposed to a huge number of scandinavians yeah and um and so uh a culture of of scandinavia i mean right, right. and so it was everywhere you know, so at a, even at an early age, I knew about ale bowls huh. and um, wooden spoon carving, and because people had them hanging on their walls. Mm. Okay. You know, or people would have an old ale bowl sitting up on a shelf, or um, or or birch bark. Um, you know, something made in birch bark. Hmm. It was brought over, and it, it's really interesting. You know, do you know these knot baskets? Have you heard them? They're called Knut Korg, Korg or... Yeah, yeah. I've seen the ones that you and Jared have made, yeah. Yeah, and like when I was 10, I think I was 10 or 11, Charlie took me to an auction, I think it was, and uh, at a farm, and I was up in Pine County, which is north of, north of the Twin Cities by about an hour. Okay. And, and they were, it was a farm auction, and... Here on the on this farm wagon were all these baskets and hmm. you know all these different items that he sat and explained to me, and one of them was one of these knot baskets, mm-hmm. a knutkor, and um, and these he was explaining how they were made, and you know those images of that never left me. Hmm. So uh, you know that they're really, and when you're that age, you're just a sponge. Yeah, yeah, um, and if you're into it. You know, so, you know, ever since then, I've just been completely focused on not, not focused, but that image is kind of burned into my memory Sure. of that, of that basket and him explaining that. Hmm. And then once I wanted to make one, you know, that's how you, you kind of work backwards hmm. from that at age 10. Hmm. Can, so, can you explain what that is for our listeners? Cause I probably, sure. almost no one knows what it is. I'm- Yes. Well, they're they're called visiting baskets or sending core, uh, which is uh, another term, and they're they're a type of basket um, 
made from four bent pieces of willow, sometimes ash, but mostly mm-hmm. willow. And the the process is they're they're actually called a tensegrity basket. Hmm. So it's something people are in we're in as humans, we're in tension and we're in compression. Hmm. So that's that's why we work the way we work. <laughs> I know that's it's a very basic, but something so these baskets are in tension and they hold each other together. They're they're four U-shaped pieces of wood hmm. and they lock together and the wood doesn't want to be in this position <laughs> but so it wants to expand so it it's it's in it in intention it, it or it's expanding and then you you put in these pieces of wood in the corners to to form firm up the frame and the the outside pieces then kind of compress hmm. those in so you get this compression and this tension um and or expansion and it holds the whole thing together and it makes this really strong basket and it's they're um they they probably are origin originated in on the west coast of norway hmm. at least all the research i've done shows that huh and and others as well and they're um they're usually made of willow ash pine and Sometimes the splints or whatever they've got available, but mostly it's willow hmm. that's been shaved down and pine. Interesting. So, yeah, they're they're really interesting baskets, and they show up in a variety of forms. So they're like a um, optical illusion almost. They are. Yeah, they really are. I was trying to think if there's something else that's more common that people would recognize, but I can't think of anything. But if you if you if you go online and look up tensegrity, um, oh, I know what it is. So, and you may not not a lot of people may have seen this, but there's a there's a birch bark box that people make um, out of one, two, three, four, six pieces of birch bark, hmm. and and you cut little rectangles of bark. And birch bark, when it sits for a while, will curl. Right, it starts to bend. Yep. And you can use that that bent, that built-in tension to put make a little square box and then you can put you so you make a square. So two two curve inward and two cur- they all curve inward but they all kind of grip around each other. And then when you put the lid and the and the bottom in, they're all pulling against each other. Hmm. And it's that that that's tensegrity that, that holds it together. Right, right. So it's a, a, a t- tension and compression, hmm. if that makes any sense. I hadn't sense. heard that word before, but I just looked it up. And I, it's funny, my daughter, she um, has a toy that's a tensegrity toy. Hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I, that's true. I, yeah. There are some. Or is it made with rods and rubber bands or yeah, something? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 It's a really cool uh, principle. But it's it's what holds us together, our skeletal system, <laughs> right, and, right. Our, right. and our um, our skin right. is the same. Right? Yeah, that's oh, so cool. And it, it's yeah, so it's you know it's a very natural form. Now the ones I'm seeing pictures of, uh, Jared's got a couple on his website that I'll, yeah. I'll link to so people can pull them up. Um, they're kind of like a square shape that tapers out from the base to the rim. 
Yeah. Um, is that was that like the traditional style? This kind of square basket. Yes, and then some of them are really extreme, hmm. um, where they really slope sides and a real arch top. Wow, they're so <laughs> cool. They're it's yeah, amazing they're how you bend the fiber too over each piece bends over the other. Yep. Yeah, wow. and it's captured there. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. And the the ones that are super extreme, they have a they're they're actually more like a, a bowl, hmm. a square bowl. Um, those are we we're fairly sure they're done on a frame. Hmm. You know, you bend them, but they're then um they're molded a bit. So you get this real severe long arch or shear like on a boat. Shear goes is hollow, so you get this arch that's mm. crown on the top. But they're um, they take quite a bit of skill to make. It looks like it. Yeah, be so a great mushroom harvesting basket. Yeah, I'm giving a talk in August on it at Besterheim Museum uh-uh. on these baskets. Awesome. So, yeah. So yeah, tell us a little I bit do- about Vesterheim. That's um, that's kind of a little gem over oh, there. Oh gosh, is it ever? Um. So Vesterheim means Western home, and it was, um, it's a Norwegian-American museum in Decorah, Iowa. Yeah. And Decorah is it's kind of an interesting little place because it's, it's in this deep little valley hmm. just <clears throat> south of Minnesota. And there are a lot of Norwegians settled there. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful area. And Luther College is there, and Luther College is a a Lutheran uh, college and um, or affiliated with the Lutheran church. And they, um, they had a very early collection of objects from Scandinavia, Hmm. mostly Norwegians, immigrants. Eventually they um, decided that they didn't want to have that burden of carrying that and being a college. So they, think it was in the late 60s or early 70s i think it was the late 60s they turned over the collection to a group of interested people and they formed the Vesterheim museum hmm. and they um now have one of the largest collections of, of uh, norwegian immigrant artifacts hmm. in the country nice and and they really have i don't know how many objects they have but they have all the things we've been talking about there, hmm. um, birch bark baskets and boxes and um, these knot baskets. They have immigrant trunks, really good um, blacksmith items, silver items, huge textile collections that are just fabulous to look at. Hmm. Um, ale bowls, um, wooden, what are they, uh, they're called, you know, uh, hardunger fiddles. Hmm. The double double strung. They have eight strings, so they have harmonic, hmm. um, resonating strings below the top ones. Uh, and they they teach classes there too. So I teach. That's another place I teach. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So I've heard a lot of good a, things about a, that. It's a wonderful wonderful place to go, and they're they're um, really knowledgeable curators and registrars and and people they're very friendly i love i love going there that's one of my most favorite places to go (laughs) we must visit Um, now 
<laughs> and I could I could spend hours in the collections. I bet. Just, you know, they're just everything is interesting. So there isn't anything there that doesn't interest me. Wow. So and they have boats too. Hmm. Really? Like full size? Yeah, boats. they have several Norwegian boats. They wow. have fine art, you know, so they have paintings, they have sculpture, they have pottery. So they've got everything from the farm to the farm and forest all the way up to the to the office park. You know, <laughs> desk sets and things like that. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, yeah. So it's it's worth a trip if you can go. It's so it's interesting to me this whole the Scandinavian heritage that um landed here is really fascinating to me because my my grandfather he he's from he was from Italy. And uh-huh. so my my dad grew up as a second you know, first generation American. Um uh-huh. but they didn't I mean aside from like their food, they didn't really learn anything about being Italian. Mm. Um <laughs> okay. but when I talk to a lot of folks from that area, uh Wisconsin, Minnesota, I Iowa, um from a certain generation, obviously more modern mm-hmm. generations, it's not so much there, but um even my grandfather, his 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 grandfather was from Norway, but even still he didn't really inherit a lot of at least that he remembers. But um what I'm getting at is that I've I've met a lot of people in that area that they have this kind of connection to the homeland and a lot of the objects and kind of traditions. Mm-hmm. And I've always found that really fascinating because there's not there's a few immigrant cultures that have that, it seems like, in America. I think yeah, and that- I've really thought hard about this um, because I think that the Scandinavian culture is so connected to the wood. Mm. Um, Hmm. And, you know, originally when, when the colonists came here and even before then the native people had a culture of wood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we've all forgotten that because we live in around so much brick and concrete. Yep. And, but wood, wood is what permeated, permeates our culture, our early culture. And it still does today. I mean, you know, what do we want to put on our floors? We don't <laughs> necessarily want concrete. It's cold. Yeah. We want wood. Yeah. It's warm to the touch and it's, it's familiar. Concrete's not, you know, it just isn't. And neither brick really. Yeah. Right. It's cool to look at, but it's just not something we choose usually to. as an interior, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's just kind of interesting to me. And, um, and I think with Scandinavians, that wood culture, they brought that with them. Hmm. It's because, um, the Scandinavian culture has a real affinity with wood. Hmm. It's because of the, the way they, the culture was developed. It just, it, um, and I think it's a, I think you see that in in new immigrant cultures today coming in, you can make a connection with them. And I've done this with through teaching. Uh, if you if you show them wood, it's a third world material. Hmm. If you nowadays, right, right. Whereas something like porcelain or aluminum or stainless steel is is a, it says you've made it into the new new millennium <laughs> new world and i think uh 
to go backwards for a lot of immigrant cultures means to go back to wood. But yeah. it's also huh. something that you can connect. Like when I've been teaching, even if they don't speak English yet, you can connect with them with, with birch bark weaving or with hmm. with um, carving wood because they all know how to do it. Right. Oh, interesting. It's familiar. And I think that those that memory of those things gets lost in a few generations. But for some reason with the Scandinavian cultures, with the wooden elbows, with the wooden spoons, the, the, the preservation of log buildings in, throughout Scandinavia, uh, the fact that they're covered so much with woods mm-hmm. and everything in their culture, the spinning wheels, their furniture was all made of wood. I think it, it means that there's a greater respect for it. And I think it came it came across in hmm. their immigrant trunks, you know, hmm. with them in their brains too. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that makes a, a huge amount of sense. But I think that's part that's, of it. Yeah, it does sound. I've always wondered because it's just, yeah, it's just so distinct. Yeah. Um, but you're the point you make about wood being kind of third world or like a sign that you have you've regressed. You know, <laughs> a lot of immigrants come to America to make more of themselves, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, and uh, you know, the there's a lot of tropes that go with that. You know, like the big yeah, house, right. the fancy car, that kind of thing. Yeah, and exactly. to have a a wooden spoon <laughs> may not represent to someone with that mindset that they've made it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I I always wanted to do a um a commercial where you remember the one I don't know I don't have I don't have a TV anymore, but there I saw this commercial for a. I think it was a Cadillac Escalade or something. And this <laughs> yeah. couple, you know, privileged couple gets out and they get all dolled up and then they go out and they're, they're, um, they're all jeweled up and they get in their Cadillac Escalade and the gate opens and they drive off into the night, you know, to go have a good time. Yeah, and I always yeah. thought it'd be fun if, if the guy comes back and says, almost forgot my wooden spoon. <laughs> you know, that'd be funny. Like that. That'd be hilarious. It would be good. You know, even yeah. with all that trapping, you know, I need my wooden spoon. Yeah, right. Uh, I know. I like that. It's amazing yeah. that you talk about like you know wood as being a material, you know, the material of a third world country or a third world uh, material, whatever. I, you know, my parents are immigrants. We they moved here from Syria um, back in the oh, early two okay. thousands, mm-hmm. and uh, I remember very vividly like the first thing my dad did when we bought a house. And, you know, this was like a beautiful house built like in the nineteen fifties, beautiful hardwood floors. Yeah. He just he tiled right over the hardwood floors. <laughs> I mean, he just like demolished the, in, the, in, the whole house by tiling right over it. I'm like, and now the, you know, the tile is cracking because the wood is obviously like shrinking, right. expanding. So, and uh, yeah, so I just wanted to bring that up. It's, that's but that's, that's illustrates too. That's the tile is familiar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly, that exactly. says, are you there? Right. Oh, it's funny. Something just changed on my screen. Oh, um, oh yeah we're still here yeah we can oh, still yeah. hear you yeah um but it's funny that you know that that's a familiar material to your father yeah and that because when you grow up in an environment where you've got sand coming in on the floor all the time right. not that syria is all sand because it's not right. not right yeah but that's a, a a permanent really great floor yes and you come from a warm environment yes i mean not all syria is warm either but right i think uh, on the whole, most people are uh, going to ha- not have a basement. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that that's a familiar floor covering, and it's yeah. going to stay warm or at least room temperature. 
yeah. or warmer. Yeah. Whereas wood, you know, if you don't can't heat your floors or you don't have, you know, some warm underneath there. Yeah. Warm. It's easier to get warm. Keep warm feet. Yes. With wood. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But speaking of that, like, you know, the climate where, where I grew up, it's, it's, you know, it's very dry and, you know, Mediterranean. I would, I, Mediterranean, I would compare it to like, you know, the weather in Northern California or Italy, for example. And okay. wood yeah. was not a material we used in building. No. Like hardly ever. I mean, everything was made from stone, concrete, and rebar. And yeah. <laughs> the interior of the house was just like all porcelain and tile and mm-hmm. all that. And it made sense because for the temperature or the climate we lived in, that was like the perfect material to use. So. Yeah. And it takes, uh, you know, and I don't, I have never been to Syria. Yeah. Um, but I, I know, uh, you know, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the, Oh, the cedar, like the cedars of Lebanon, you know, yes. people always talk yeah. about those. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, they're gone, you know, yeah. they were cut down. Right. And... So so that was my next point is that we don't have a forest. Right. Yeah. Like where right. we lived, where I lived in the village, we had a small forest and a mountain, you know, a view from, uh, from our balcony uh, in front of our house where we lived in this valley. But, you know, the wood wasn't like, oh, let's go cut this tree down and use it to build a shed. Like right. it wasn't viewed as such, you know, mm-hmm. they used it to make charcoal mm-hmm. so they can use it for cooking, yeah. but they never, you know, and we don't, like I said, we don't have a forest. We don't have an abundance of, of, the, of that material right. to use because everything has been turned into fields for mm-hmm. wheat, you know? Right. So, exactly. And you think about the history of like a country like that, you know, Syria, like probably one of the first countries mm-hmm. to ever be civilized where people were started farming, you know, like yeah. mm-hmm. that whole region uh, in the world there. And yeah, that their forests were gone very early on because yeah. everything got turned into fields of wheat. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. So. No, I, it's interesting. I, I'm reading a book called Oak. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read that book. No, I want no. to now. Um, yeah. See, I just a second. I think I have it right here. Oh, yeah, it's it's called the Frame of Civilization, mm. and um, it's by William Bryant Logan. Okay, yeah, I've, I've seen this book before. Okay, it's really fascinating. Got to get it now. <laughs> I'm trying not to barrel through it because I don't want to. I don't want it to end. It's really <laughs> so. Uh, I really am, and am enjoying it. Oh, but, um, but it's it's good book. So it talks a lot about the things we're talking about with how wood plays into a civilization. Yeah. As yeah. a um, and how it how everything can kind of um, stem from the wood. Right. In terms of names and culture and how we think about things, so. Right. But it's it's a good book. You, I think you both like it. Yeah, get out. So yeah. Um, <clears throat> Mike's point made me think back to uh, in Scandinavia as well. They don't have a lot of good farmland, mm. so right. there's a lot more forest because it's mountainous and rocky and right. Um, so that probably plays into why they are such a large wood culture because their life wasn't dependent on wheat fields and right yeah i mean obviously they ha- obviously they grow grains and have grown grains in Scandinavia, but it's a different context it's similar to where we live we live in the mountains of central virginia and Appalachian Mountains. there's yeah. really not there's not a uh arable land so to speak of um mm-hmm. 
in the in our general area um and you know here is historically uh much more homesteads and small farms yeah. and less you know broad production of crops yeah and right. lots and lots of wood culture too historically yeah. not so much anymore but right yeah um, can, you, can you hear that vacuum i can a little bit it's not too bad yeah it's not too bad okay good <laughs> i'm not vacuuming it's somebody else that's <laughs> all right yeah um yeah, so many things to discuss. Um, right. Definitely. Yeah. I think, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I, I'm. I didn't want to go too too long on all this, but you, no, I think you have more like, questions. Ask. I'm, yeah, I mean, I do, but I feel like this is kind of a good good yeah, point to yeah. to end okay. on. We've we've covered a lot of ground, you know. I think I think so. Very in depth. Conversation. I think people really. I know I really enjoy the conversations where we're yeah. kind of getting into your head and, and what, and what inspires <laughs> you and what you think about. Cause that's for me, ultimately, like I love making things, but the process of making them and what I think about and what I discover in my mind while I'm mm-hmm, making is, mm-hmm. is why I do it more yeah. than anything really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cause it's yeah. Like a nice. It's a, I feel like that's why a lot of people that do things with their hands and tend to be more philosophical minded mm-hmm. because you have a lot of time to think. Yes. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I always compare it, to, compare it to meditation and a form of therapy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Peter, do <throat> you know uh, Martin Hazel? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he uh, brings that point up with um, uh, Peter Damien. Right, yes, yes. Uh, talking about the meditative qualities of, of he specifically mentioned spoon carving. Yeah. Yes. Utensils, so. the, the saint of spoon carving. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. To talk about too. Absolutely. But, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I feel like it's a good point to, to wrap up our discussion. Um, and we have a traditional last question. Oh, and, okay. And that is, what does Sloyd mean to you? Gosh, you know, Sloyd is always meant to me when I first learned of the word, it's always meant the connection of the art of everyday living. I know nice. that sounds, uh, and nice. all those crafts that go into making a life hmm. uh, more livable. That's beautiful. I love that. That's, that's awesome. beautiful. Yeah, very good there. So that's what to me. Beautiful. That reminds me a lot of um, uh, Copperweight's work. He kind of oh, he yeah. talks a lot about that sort of idea of uh, being everyday yeah. living. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, why why shouldn't we all have beautiful things that are handmade in our lives? Right. Absolutely. Every day. Right. Absolutely. You know, it's a blessing. So, and we can all do it. We yeah. Can yeah. All do it. Exactly. We can all do it. We can all create those objects ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. Yeah. So, like awesome. you said, we all have those genes within us. We just have to <laughs> bring them back to life. Yeah. Them. Yeah. Got to tease them out. Well, Fred, thanks for joining us. It's been a great chat. Um, Thank you both. Pleasure. Love learning some more about your life and what you're doing and and your philosophy. Um, It's all really, really nice to hear. And hopefully it'll inspire other people to dig deeper. Yeah. And maybe go go to their local museum. Yeah. See if they got any spoons. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Now I'm curious. (laughs) It's worth a question. Worth asking. Yeah. Why not? Um, If folks want to find you on the internet, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, I'm at hand to mouth crafts. 
and it's okay. it's hand with two as the number two okay. mm. on on yeah. instagram yes awesome yeah. you have a website as well i don't okay. i never have yeah okay i seem to do fine without it yeah great <laughs> i like that attitude <laughs> and yeah. are you teaching any classes still at north house or do you have any upcoming classes you want to uh, tell us about yeah, I'm teaching um, a birch bark box class coming up in I think it's October, but you'd have to check. I don't remember. Okay. Actually. Okay. Um, and then a couple of we do three spoon classes up there, um, and the new I have a new uh, concert with the, and that's Mike Loeffler, whose last name means spoon yep. in German. Mm -hmm. Nice. And uh, so he and I are teaching those classes now. Awesome. Lovely. I love Mike. He's a great dude. He yeah. is. He's a really great human being. So, yeah. yeah, and you're you're doing your. Uh, I looked it up. You're doing your uh, Newt Korg class uh, in August, August 25th at Vesterheim. So yeah, that's it'll be a um, uh, not a podcast, but a like a Zoom meeting. Oh, okay. Um, kind oh, of yeah, webinar. I see that webinar. That's the term. I'm just getting into this, so it's <laughs> hey. And then and then I'll be teaching down there in the late later in the fall. Cool. Hey, yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll put all those links in the show notes. Um, well, thank and yeah. you. Thanks again for joining us, Fred. Hopefully we can talk right. again in the future. I hope so too. Take care, you two. Thanks, Fred. You have a good afternoon. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>